I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Andy Greenwald. I have no official title at TheRinger.com. And joining me on the other line, not here in the studio, it's your guy, Chris Ryan. Welcome. Welcome it's to the show, It's your guy. Chris. I can't get anything more special than you know, that. I, I started to do a big wind-up. I'm not pitching out of the, the stretch here. I, I was going to do a full, full goose gossage on you. And then I was just like, why invite it? You know, I'm a little froggy. I've got a little bit of a cold. I just, I, I didn't want to open the door. You, this okay. is, that's your bit. I'm homesick today, but I, 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 I took enough emergency to do this podcast with you, but I can't get more than it's your guy. I, I get where we're at. It's your number one guy? It's my, <laughs> my guy? Sure. Before Anything's we, better than that. Before we get into our television conversation, uh, I hope that many people spent the holiday reading through Megan Abbott's Queen Pin, which is our Double Down Book Club selection, which is a great, great book, a great read. We are going to be talking about that with Megan in a couple weeks, in the month of December. We will have a date. We'll announce a date uh, soon, once we, once we pin it down on the schedule. But that's coming. Read the book. It's and under then Megan and I get to geek out about Mindhunter. Yes, you're excited about that, because you personally converted her to Mindhunter. I did. It was my evangelism. Let's talk about today's show. And also, thank you to, to Post 7 a.m. from New York Flight, Zach Mack, for not giving me a sarcastic nod when I said, let's get into this show. Um, here's what we got for you today. We're going to be talking about television. Shouts to Sam Esmail. That's what we do on this show. Because we are a couple days away from December, ostensibly the last month of the year. But there are, there are a lot of shows out there right now. There are a lot of shows coming back, a lot of shows debuting. And we want to discuss some of them with you and see what's good, what's bad, what we recommend you spending your hard-earned uh, time capital on. Later in today's show, I've got an interview with the stars of one of those shows, Rachel Brosnahan, who is the star of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which debuts on Amazon on Wednesday. I love the show. I'm going to talk a little bit about it. Um, You may know Rachel from uh, House of Cards. You will know her after the show debuts because she makes the show. She's absolutely tremendous. I had a great time chatting with her. Um, That's the back half of the show. But we are going to talk about, let's roll call this. We're going to talk about Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. We're going to talk a little bit about Smilf. We're going to talk about Runaways on Hulu. We are going to talk about Search Party on TBS, and we're going to talk about Godless, which is the show we spoke in our last episode a week ago. We spoke to the creator, writer, director, Scott Frank, about that. Chris, you have spent this weekend watching Godless. I I feel like that's fair. That's pretty much how you spent your days. I watched a bunch of Godless. I watched watched the first four, and those are 70-minute episodes, so that was not an inconsiderable amount of my time spent. In the Old West, uh, traipsing across New Mexico with these these characters, um, and that's kind of I, I was I I think that what Scott was sort of talking about last week about um, I think we brought up like the the horse training scene. You, you may have, may have made a joke about the horse training that goes on in the show. There's yeah. a lot of breaking of horses, uh, staring into the eyes of horses, Bre- breaking them and horses. putting them back together again. Really, yeah. Um, and he's like, I think Scott said something along the lines of, "Well, you got to do it if you're going to make a western. You got to throw that in there." And that is sort of the guiding principle of this entire show, I think, mm-hmm. is if you're going to make a Western, like make the Western, make the Western you always wanted to make. And I, uh, I realized how much I just sort of miss watching Westerns. Uh, it, it's, it's, not, like, it's not a very high-concept show. You know, I, I think that there's a little bit where we're kind of trained now at this point to be like, where are the robots? Or mm-hmm. when are we going to find out that this is all a dream or that this, you know, this person isn't what they seem. And I'm sure maybe in the second half of the season, 
there are some things that are going to come to light that we, we didn't understand. I mean, I, I don't know how many episodes you've watched. But um, I admire this show very greatly, aside from my own personal biases towards the genre and just the, the landscape. I admire this show a lot for its investment and its its material and its, its sort of comfort in its own skin. And I think if you get to the third episode where there is literally like a 20-minute sequence of Jack O'Connell just training a horse... <laughs> It, it is definitely a little bit slow TV. I mean, it's not exactly... You, you are allowed to check Twitter while you're watching that. You're not going to miss some communion between man and beast that changes the way you look at the world. But that being said, I think that it is an example of someone really pushing what you can get out of a television budget when it comes from someplace like Netflix. And I have to say that uh, it is gorgeous to look at, especially on a bigger television screen if if you... If you have access to watching Netflix on a on a big flat screen, um, I would I would definitely recommend watching Godless in that way. I have a flat landscape. I've got a flat. You know that I do. Yeah, so I mean, the landscape photography that they've done uh, for Godless is is remarkable, and I just want to say shout out to Merritt Weaver and shout out to Scoop McNary, two of my favorite actors who both get really like meaty roles, and it's really great to see people who are usually shunted off to being. B or C or D plots in uh, TV shows or movies. I know that Scoot had a real nice nice run on Halt, but to see Scoot McNary just kind of get this much screen time and to see Merritt Weaver get this much screen time and really like sink into their characters is really really remarkable. It's it's, fan- it's a, I've really been enjoying the show. I really I haven't watched as many as you have because um, I did not have 19 hours free to watch horses, but. I plan to because I really enjoy the show and I really admire it. And I think one of the I think you've really touched on one of the reasons why I like it, which is we need to take a breath here as TV and culture fans. We do not always need to reinvent the wheel. And if we make that the um, the bar to clear for everything, then we're going to be very, very disappointed. And that makes good, probably good culture Twitter, but not very good culture. Um, there is a reason why we watch television and the large part of it isn't innovation it's comfort and when you make a western i you know i i really i i appreciated what what scott told us you make a western you you got to have the horses you got to have the duel i mean otherwise what else are you doing and i think that there has been a miss i I think godless has been a and it's a minor case study because this hasn't exactly like been a trending topic but it's been interesting to watch some of the coverage of godless where people pick up on some of the smaller pieces of the puzzle not smaller because they're less um, important, but smaller because they are literally are smaller pieces of the story he's telling, such as the the town full of widows, um, the the sort of sneaky feminism that runs through the piece. That is not that what he was doing is making a western. He was not necessarily setting out to make a um, paradigm overturning feminist statement. Now there are plenty of great over power, patriarchy overturning feminist statements to be made, and I applaud people who do. But I think we just need to look at this for what it is, and it is a good Western with some interesting subplots to it. And I think that's okay. The take is that there is no take. That that's that's his take on the Western, and it and it's it's a he he does something that's very um, it, it is very cinematic, and not in terms of its visual. Although I do think the visual language of the show has got more to do with. And he shouted out Eastwood. He shouted out Sergio Leone when he was on the pod mm-hmm. than it does with say the mechanics of a lot of television shows. But I think that the storytelling and the way in which it, it, the scenes don't have the same economy that a movie needs to. So in a, in a film, I think that the Jack O'Connell breaking horses could last 
45 seconds to two minutes. Right. You got to keep it moving. You have only have so much screen time in this show. Uh, he is allowed to really, really invest in these moments, which may be boring. I'm not. I'm not trying to say that they have a 100 percent approval rating, but they weirdly accumulate to giving you a deeper connection to some of these characters mm-hmm. than you would normally if it was just like, hey, we got to get in, we got to get out, and then we have to have the next shoot 'em up. I think one of the reasons why we like Scott Frank's work so much, and not just because I think, as we discussed last week, I, I, his taste aligns with ours in a lot of ways in terms of his reading material and his influences, but he's not afraid of giving people popcorn, you know, and, and I think that's one of the reasons, sneaky reasons, why he and Steven Soderbergh, who's an executive producer of Godless, get along so well, is that Soderbergh is doing very innovative things with his casting, with his camera work, et cetera, et cetera, but he understands that when you're making Ocean's Eleven, getting the gang together montages that's what you're there for, man. It's a heist movie. Um, He understands that in Out of Sight, which was his collaboration, first collaboration with Scott Frank, um, you you, you have them, you you lock them in a trunk together. You have George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez, you know, setting off fire alarms everywhere they go. You lock them in a trunk together and see what happens. Give the people the the things that they want to make make this an enjoyable, um, to make this an enjoyable thing. And I I do think that that's an underrated part of Godless um, that you have to allow to accumulate because it does happen to be a little bit. It is long, but it's we're just going to get one of these, so enjoy it. So you're talking about this idea that not every show has to be high concept. Not every and I, you know, I, the take of God, Godless is there really isn't a take. Mm-hmm. One show that I think was both propelled to a degree of notoriety because of its angle and its concept, and and also a lot of people when they heard that there was going to be a second season were a little bit like, how are they going to do that? Yep, yep. With Search Party. Uh, now, Search Party, for those who don't know, is a TBS show. I think they dropped it all at once last year. Am I right? Yeah, they made it available. They made the entire season available on it on the website while while rolling it out um, uh, week by week linearly. Week but. by week, right? And uh, I think they put up the first two episodes. They may have already put up a third. I'm not sure. Um, but you know, it's the, the the shorthand version of it is it's it's Scooby Doo but hipsters. It's basically a group of 20-something Brooklynites uh, who find themselves sort of like it's the main character, uh, Dory, played by Aaliyah Shawkat. She's looking for meaning in her life, and she finds it by pursuing this mystery of a missing girl who she had sort of a passing relationship with, but she decides to make into this sort of symbol for everything that's wrong with her life by trying to find what happened to her. And uh, it really, really was like kind of a, a, a huge surprise last year because it was hilarious. John Early is so funny in it, but then there was also these these chilling moments, and there were some really nice dramatic beats. And they get to the end of last season, and I think for the people who enjoyed it, even for the people who loved it, it was probably like, now what? So do you do a hard reset right? where you go back to the beginning and everybody is fine and you do another mystery, basically? So the essentially a uh, an episode, a seasonal episodic version where you just mm-hmm. each season has a mystery? Or do you say in the tradition of the great, you know, of the school of improvising, yes and. So this has happened, now what? And that's what the second season is doing. It's basically looking at all the consequences without giving anything away from the first season of what happens in the first season and showing how people are kind of dealing with that. And, um, you know, it still has incredibly funny moments and incredibly, you know, perceptive moments. But it is a different show, and it, it, I'm curious to know what you think of it. It's it's an interesting test case, and I'm going to reiterate what Chris said. We're not going to spoil um, the events of the first season, and I think we can talk about it without that, without doing so, um, because, again, our producer, Zach, just started it, and we, I, I don't want to upset him any further than <laughs> I already have today. Um, 
I appreciate the show more than I enjoy it. And that has been brought to the fore more than I expected in the second season. If you look at the first season, I think it's actually doing something really sneaky and really terrific. Um, this idea of, of weaponizing uh, online culture and millennial angst and, and putting it in the service of a real world, quote unquote, real world with real consequences, where one character's idle involvement in other people's lives, which as we all know is incredibly available to all of us at any moment, suddenly, suddenly becomes crushingly real. Um, where her version of events, because what we all do, I mean, the, the show plays with this idea so well, something that we all do, which is if we are, you know, left alone with our phone for too long, and we can go down these rabbit holes, not just of, you know, weird Wikipedia pages, but of people's lives, people that we once knew, and who they've become, and who they know now, and what the, what, what the relationship is between them in yeah. that picture that they've made public for some reason, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is what that show is, and it's written with a really savage and f- often very funny um, voice from Sarah Violet Bliss and Charles Rogers, who are the co-creators. They'd made two indie movies before this, shepherded by Michael Showalter, formerly of The State, director of The Big Sick. Um, I, it's, I, I'm struggling with this. They made the right choice for a television show, particularly the type of show that it is in 2017, because this is a sneaky success story for TBS, because they, bet, they, they, they made a bet on who the show is for, um, as evidenced by the way they put it all online, they when they do the when they're doing the press for the second season and, and the sort of one of the narratives attached to it is um, we have the numbers that suggest if people watch one episode they watched all of them or that they continued watching. Yeah. So knowing that, making it a deeply serialized show where the second season picks up literally a second after the first season ends, that makes sense. That's the way we tell stories on television now. That said. I am increasingly less interested in it because the first season was about how did, you know, oh my goodness, we are slipping into a mess. And the second season is how are we going to extricate ourselves from this mess? It allows the characters to go to interesting places, the actors to do interesting things, but I am less interested in it because I think that all those themes I'm talking about, the sort of the overlapping of IRL and online and the sort of vapidity of these characters as the body count rises, um, that was interesting to me. And this is less it's just less interesting to me it, it the, the the ingredients are a little off but look this is the where we are if they had done a hard reboot whether it was with the same characters or not the show would have gotten ripped by the fans that made it a semi-success because they don't buy that you know there there is a generation of tv fans who reject things that you and i thought of as boilerplate of what you could and couldn't do because they say that's just too tv you know just the yeah, idea right. of a character investigating a murder in season one, I'm not talking about search party, but theoretically, and then, oh, there's another murder here. That would get laughed out of the focus groups. You know, like, look, I mean, the show like Murder, She Wrote, obviously, is the extreme example of it. But it's like, so this New England town is basically a hellscape, you know? Sure, um, sure. That's quote unquote TV. Search party is, is running anti-TV, uh, not anti because it's against it, because it's literally running, it's just playing, it's running an opposite package of plays here. And I respect it. Uh, I really like some of the performers, particularly Meredith Hagner. I think is really funny as Portia. I'm less inclined to keep going with it. Where are you with it? I'm I'm into it. It's it's like I, I find that it's a. I'm looking at season two almost more as a coda to season one uh, rather than a new story. But it is it's still really really funny. And we've talked about this a lot this year uh, and last year. Just the the sort of pleasure of of a well made thirty minute or less show and. Yeah. 
the ability. I, I think I gave it a lot more slack because it is because it's only you know asking twenty five minutes of your time. Uh, it, it's it's not it's not that hard to screw up. It's true, and 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 it's doing something. It's hard to screw it up. It's rather. doing something smart, and it's doing something fresh, and it's doing it with a very specific voice. And I don't know what more you can ask for a TV show in an era when there are, quite frankly, too many TV shows. Um, right. So it deserves credit, and it probably deserves your sampling if you haven't already. And and to that to that end, the entire first season remains available on TBS.com, I believe, without commercials, just to yeah. get you ready to watch the second season. So we should talk about another half hour show. Whereas Search Party is kind of taking darker material and lightening it up a little bit. I think Smilf on Showtime, and you've talked to Frankie Shaw on the pod, kind of presents, I, I, I was going to say light, light material in a dark way, but I, I guess it's kind of the same thing. I guess it is sort of like it, the surroundings are bleak, the characters are in dire straits, but there's a lot of humor in it. Yeah, the thing about Smilf, Smilf is fascinating. Um, how, many have you, how many have you watched? Because I know you were just sampling it. I really loved the first two. I really liked the the third. I watched the 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 fourth episode, which aired um, last night, um, and it and frankly, it's a mess. And I don't mean that pejoratively. Like it, it's just kind of a it's a very very messy episode that is to me completely fascinating, both for the subject matter, but also for the 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 joy that I get out of watching a show. It's like watching a baby bird being born and learning how to walk or fly or neither. Like. This show can be anything right now, and particularly so, because what Showtime has invested in here, and, and, and there was, a, there was a, a process of you know, going over scripts and, and, and blah, 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 but they've invested in Frankie, who is a young, multi-hyphenate, as they say, and talent, hugely talented at, at all of them, with a, very distinct, um, with a very distinctive voice. And when you invest in someone who has a lot of voice and is just learning how to use the instrument, um, it's fascinating. So she and I talked about this a couple weeks ago when she was on the podcast, um, that she was sort of uh, annoyed by some of the criticism that, you know, it got generally positive reviews, but I think some of the critics were pointing out what what I'm saying, which is that, well, this show can just be anything at any given moment. To me, that remains a positive. Um, because quite frankly, there, there are no other shows where uh, a single mother character is, you know, lamenting the limits, societal limits of her gender, and then when walking through the supermarket, basically grabs a, a can of Pringles, stuffs it down her pants, propositions a stock boy, and then fucks him in the back just to see how that makes her feel. You know, there, there, is a, there, is, there is so many things going on in the show at any given moment, and to some that may be too many. But I do think there's, there's value for people who are fans of the medium to see what it can be if the training wheels are taken off. For someone, if someone is someone is give, someone deserving is given that freedom um, at an earlier point in their career, and I think that's exciting. Yeah, and also, can I just say, um, Connie Britton is worth the price of <laughs> of entry. Yeah, I mean, Connie Britton is just hanging out on this show. Um, yeah, and she's having a great time. It feels like they did all of her scenes in like the house that you know. So she is, uh, she's the person. Uh, who employs who's the main character's name? Bridget. Bridget. She employs Bridget to be like her tutor for her kids, but they basically just like hang out and gossip a lot. And uh, she's she's something else, man. I feel like they shot all of her scenes just walking around that townhouse in like two days, but they were awesome. Also, you gotta admire 
the the stones on someone who created a television show for herself and sometimes it seems like she did it just so she could shoot hoops with cameras on her yeah. Um, yeah. The the character is I mean her character's name is Bridget Bird. She's named her her child Larry Bird intentionally. Yeah. She's obsessed with the Celtics. She still wants to be a professional basketball player herself and many episodes are bookended by by Bridget just shooting hoops alone in a park in Southie and you know she has to understand that she's out here in a world where there are full-time television basketball critics like like your guy Chris Ryan out there just like like <laughs> wolves. You know, she, she's fearless. I, she she did a lot of work in the post in yeah. that one basketball scene in the pilot, and I I, I appreciate it. But it's, you don't see a lot of post play and pickup. Huh? It, really? You mean in, in yeah? In, in I feel pickup? like I mean Zach Mack could maybe speak to this, but it's more of like a flow offense. Like I think people there's a lot of transition play. You but, don't see as many like half court sets. It just it, it's a interesting market inefficiency to exploit to be like why don't we send the shortest person into the post which mm. is what Bridget is doing in that team but I, I, I respect it talking about. <laughs> that's incredible <laughs> so moving on we're going to talk about two shows that we have interviews attached to um, interview with Rachel Brosnan coming up shortly but we should talk briefly about uh, Marvel's Runaways which is on Hulu the first two or three episodes are available now for you to, to check out. And we're very excited that on Thursday, on the re-up, we are going to have not just the creators of the show, Josh Schwartz and Stephanie Savage, but also the creator of the comic book that the show is based on, Brian K. Vaughn. And I believe they haven't done any or many or any group interviews. So we're going to be able to talk about the process of adaptation and working together or not working together when it was appropriate. But this, was, but this is cool. I, I think that's going to be really cool. And this whole show is very cool to me because... Um, for people who don't know about it, this is the property that um, a friend of mine who is a big comic book head and, and works in this business as well said when the comic was being published over 10 years ago, this is the single best idea Marvel has had in 30 years. And it was Brian K. Vaughn's idea. Basically saying that of everything that, that, that Marvel can, published 10, 20 years ago, everything Marvel publishes today, everything that has influenced and inspired the movies – this is the first truly fresh idea. And the idea is this. A bunch of kids, sort of disaffected, not really friends. You know the, you know the friends you grow up with because your parents are friends and then you sort of have to sure. see each other twice a year? A group of friends like that in a very rich enclave of Los Angeles get together and then in one night they discover that their parents are supervillains and they run away from them. And that's the gist. And the, show is called, the comic was called Runaways. It was tremendous success for Marvel and truly a great read. You can get the collected editions. And for a lot of people, it was the holy grail of adaptations still remaining in the chamber. Um, and Marvel, quite rightly, was pretty protective of it. They were do- trying to make it a movie for a while. And then Josh Schwartz, who is a friend of the podcast and will be on a podcast Thursday, um, pried it from them, basically. And I think the pitch that he gave them was that his track record on shows like The O.C., uh, and Gossip Girl is, you know, playing comic booky drama, which existed in both of those shows, but trying to stay true to some emotional life of the characters, kids and adults. And uh, Marvel TV signed off on it. They adapted it, adapted it in an interesting way, loose enough to make it a TV show, I would say, um, but accurate, but but in spirit enough to the TV show, to the comic book, where there, yes, there still is a uh, pet dinosaur. Um, <laughs> but for me. You know, and we'll talk about this more on Thursday. What's really pleasurable about the show is that it it scratches the same itch that Josh and Stephanie shows often do. It is a um, emotional soap opera, not in a 
again, not in a judgmental, I don't mean that in a judgy way, it's a emotionally true soap opera for teenage life, except it's sort of reimagined for this decade, which is a decade dominated by superheroics and superpowers. And I think that really, really works. And I think people who are afraid of the, the first word in the title, which is Marvels with the apostrophe, um, should give it a look if, if for that reason alone. Yeah. I'm excited, man. I mean, like, I, I also think one thing that uh, Josh Schwartz and Stephanie Savage shows do is they start strong. They usually have the voice really early yeah. and are able to, they're really good at um, temp, plot tempo and getting you into the parts of the story that you need to be and out of the parts of the story that are kind of ancillary or, you know, you kind of have to do them because it's like what the rules are, but you don't want to spend a ton of time on them. But, you know, early, early OC, early Gossip Girl, really stuff cooked. So I'm really excited for this. And it's interesting, too, to watch now uh, knowing, we know, we, you know, people who are fans of TV know who these guys are. They, we know their voice. We know what they're good at. Uh, we know how much they worship at the church of John Hughes, but they've also had to exist and have successfully existed in our current media landscape. And so often, just like we talk about how, you know, writer directors, young writer directors with interesting voices sometimes or regularly have to submit to the machine, you know, and Trojan horse their movie into a Marvel production or a what have you. Um, they've been able to do that as well and watching them adapt, you know, so Gossip Girl gave them pre-existing IP and a framework for a type of story they wanted to tell. This is a more successful marriage, I would say. And obviously Gossip Girl ran for a bunch of years and was very popular. But to me, this is a much more successful marriage of of what they can do and what can get greenlit. Their so we'll, sensibilities, yeah. We'll talk about that more on Thursday. Let's let's wrap up this part of our conversation by just by giving a shout out to the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Some of you heard me rave about this months ago when Amazon put the pilot out there. The pilot is still available for Amazon Prime subscribers. The entire first season drops on Wednesday, the 29th. Such a weird choice by Amazon to put it out this week. I don't know why they didn't put it out last week, so people could have watched it um, over Thanksgiving, but this is what they're doing. Um, this is they, an have, a- they have Godless's block, man. It, well, <laughs> I, I'm going to go on a limb and say these are the, the Venn diagram overlap. Maybe it's just watch listeners. I don't know. It, I, I can't. I can't imagine a ton of people loving both, but maybe, maybe. Um, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is an Amy Sherman Palladino show. Um, there are people who who adore her work, her work with her husband, Gilmore Girls being the prime example of it. There are others who are allergic to it. Where do you fall on the spectrum generally? Uh, I'm actually not. I'm not in either camp. Like I, I find some some Gilmore Girls stuff pretty delightful. I wouldn't call myself like a huge Palladino head, but I, I I like it. I like it fine, actually. I, I watched the the reunion episodes. I I, le- I loved the pilot for for Meisel, so I'm I'm really ex- excited. For people who don't know that that what we're talking about when we talk about her writing style, it's basically dialogue as written to the rhythm of the Chinese gold medal ping pong team. And Highly ev- literate. Yeah. Chock full of references. Incredible patter. Everybody's got you know nine one liners per per one sentence. But it's it's high volume shooting. This show is about a young housewife um, who is the titular Mrs. Maisel, and uh, basically she's hyper competent and very funny and wants to make a name, wants to be sort of a unique flame in this world. And uh, in the pilot, discovers the downtown stand up comedy scene as her own life sort of crumbles. So she's becoming a stand up comic. Uh, Lenny Bruce is a character in the show. Um, it, I just think it is so delightful with real heart, with great humor and intelligence, 
really fun performances. I think Rachel Brosnan's performance, it's just like John Hamm and Mad Men, where maybe you'd seen that face before, that chin, and then yeah. you can't imagine the show being made without without that this person. I'm really excited for it. Amazon gave it a two-season order, um, and you can check it out on Wednesday. And before we get into this interview, I did want to say, uh, obviously, this is... This is a good look for Amazon to have the show right now. Amazon has been in hot water. Um, Many of its executives have been let go for either outright sexual misconduct or affiliation with that misconduct. Um, And so for for Amazon to have a proudly feminist show like this with women in front of and behind the cameras in key roles is is great. I mean, it would have been great anyway, but I'm happy that Amazon has this show. Of course, they had the show already, so it's not exactly like a corrective. Um, I did want to say, and you know about this because you weren't, Chris, you weren't in this interview, but I saw you right afterwards. You guys will hear this interview, and I had a great time talking to Rachel. I did not ask her about Kevin Spacey and House of Cards, a show that she was on. And you'll hear when we're talking, I came close to it. I'd considered it. I had written some questions on that subject. And then I kind of punted. I guess it's kind of up to everybody else if I did or I didn't. Part of my reasoning was, well, she didn't really share many scenes with Kevin Spacey uh, on House of Cards. The other reason was I became kind of uncomfortable talking to this young actress and feeling putting he was promoting her first starring role and basically saying, because of your gender or your IMDb page, you have to answer for this. I need you to explain this to me, what's going on in Hollywood and what it means. And we talked about the gender imbalance in Hollywood, and we talked about the importance of shows like this and and encouraging women to take up roles, not just as actors, but also behind the scenes. But I didn't actually get the soundbite. And I'm just owning up to it ahead of time. If you're wondering um, if I thought about it or if I was asked not to, I was not asked not to bring it up. And, And so I'm kicking myself a little bit because I would have liked to have heard her perspective specifically of what it was like on set in House of Cards. But you guys can be the judge of it. It did not feel appropriate in that moment. So we are going to break for some words from our sponsors, um, and then we're going to return with my interview with Rachel Brosnahan. Chris, do you want equal time afterwards to be the ombudsman of the watch to critique my my journalism? Never, man. <laughs> You're beyond reproach. I appreciate that. I don't know if that's true, but I appreciate it. So here's the rundown. Interview with Rachel Brosnahan coming up after a quick break. Chris and I will be back at full strength, I hope, in good health, on Thursday with a very special episode featuring Josh Schwartz, Stephanie Savage, and Brian K. Vaughn to talk about Runaways on Hulu, so you have time to catch up on that. Uh, Read Queen Pin by Megan Abbott. What, what else is there to say? Should we, should, should we give people some information on how they can, um, like, go fund me Kleenex to your home? <laughs> Look, man, I just, I'm just going to be here training horses. I'm sure I'll be, I'll be fine by You're Thursday. You're probably allergic to horses. You're probably not even sick. <laughs> that, that explains it. That, that explains it. Always a pleasure, even at a great distance, Chris. Um, here's some words from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with my interview with Rachel Brosnahan from The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by the homies at Sonos. The big homies at Sonos will never steer you wrong. Guys... Let me tell you about Sonos. You know how we feel about it. You know how Chris and I both love listening to music and podcasts and radio in different rooms of our home at different times and sometimes even all at the same time. But let's talk about their latest creation. Let's talk about the Sonos One. The Sonos One blends the traditional great sound of Sonos with Amazon Alexa, the easy-to-use voice service for hands-free control of your music and more. 
This is great because now you can use your voice to play songs or raise the volume, lower the volume, switch radio stations while you cook. And I I think watch listeners are always cooking, but I actually do have a Sonos in my kitchen and this is very, very useful because you don't want to be touching your beautiful machinery when you got fish sauce on your hands or whatever else you may be messing around with that day. Just tell Alexa to do it. She'll do it for you. You could even request a lullaby out loud while you're tucking in your kids. Don't do it while you're tucking in my kids. That's a weird situation. So you can play songs. You can turn on the lights. You can adjust the temperature, check news and traffic, manage your smart devices. All of the things that you can do with Amazon Alexa, now you can do it using a single Sonos speaker. Plus, this is still a Sonos, guys. It's backed by a pair of Class D amplifiers and custom-built drivers. So the sound is face-melting and pure. You don't want to test the face-melting abilities during the lullabies, though. Just want to let you know about that from experience. Since Sonos is continually updating itself with new features, new services, and skills, your music and voice options will keep getting better over time. Here's the best part. Sonos is right now offering the listeners of the watch 10% off one order of $2,500 or less for any product on Sonos.com. So if you want the voice-controlled Sonos One, you know which promo code to use. If you want to get one of those play-based Johns for your television, this is a good deal for that. All the stuff's good. This offer is available for a limited time only. It cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. But it's the holiday buying season. I think even today is Cyber Monday. Get on Sonos.com and use this offer. Here's how to do it. Go to Sonos.com. Here's the promo code. WATCH10. That's capital letters. W-A-T-C-H-1-0 at Sonos.com to receive this offer. Do it. It's Sonos. I'm very excited to be joined here in the studio, the very studio where we recorded a Game of Thrones after show that my guest did not watch or know about. I'm so uh, sorry. The star of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Rachel Brosnahan, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Um, as I said to you before you started recording, I am such a fan of the show. Thank you. And particularly your performance in it. Thanks. And I want to start with a real hardball here. Oh, gosh. Um, I watched the pilot, as I hope many did. Uh, Amazon put the pilot out earlier in the year. Yeah, before. It's been out for a year. You have no excuse now. I agree. <laughs> uh, you should have seen the after show, too, that we did here. You did one? No. <laughs> that was just a, <laughs> a test. Um, but we should. Uh, I watched the pilot, as many did, or hopefully will, and my main thought was, this is terrific, I love it, but there is no way you can make the show without you and your performance in it. And the script is good. I mean, there's so many good things about it, but it, it does seem to me like one of these pieces of writing where uh, Amy Sherman Palladino wrote the script, and I wonder, just as she's writing it, she has to be just banking on the universe, giving her the right midge. Um, when you read it, the script, hmm. did you read this thinking... I can do this. This is this is a part I can do. I did, um, perhaps naively so. You know, like I did. I read it and I was like, not so much I I can do this, but I I have to do this. I want to oh, do this so it's badly. Compelling. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was I was I was in right away. The first page is the the giant wedding monologue. I was <laughs> I was sold by the bottom of the first page. Um, I wanted to do it right away, and. Uh, and and was like I can do this until I started trying to do it and then was like oh god um, <laughs> but 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 loved it when you say do this is it particularly the almost athletic quality of the dialogue yes it's it's basically a giant tongue twister the whole script you have to do many mouth warm ups and I was I was unaccustomed to it at that point uh, but now. Now I can talk. I can talk with the best of them. This is good for podcasts. <laughs> uh, 
when you so you read the script, you liked it. Um, you, I imagine then you had a meeting with with Amy and her team about it. What what were the early stages of this process like? So I'm very yeah. because again, to me, you don't make the show without you. So how did so Thank you. take me behind that before you even had it? Super, super, super standard. So yeah. I read the script. I loved the script. I was like, please, dear Jesus, someone let me do this. Uh, Jesus is not guiding this project. That's I true. have to tell you. That will definitely no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, but you know, and so I I went into like a very standard meeting with casting directors first. Mm-hmm. Did a took a took a first stab at it with very little time to prepare, and uh, and then got a call saying that um, they wanted me to fly out to LA to meet with Amy and Dan, and do sort of an informal screen test. Okay, um, and then I well so. Between then and when I was supposed to go, I contracted what can only be referred to as the plague. Uh, I swear to you, I've never been so sick in my entire life. Oh, no. Uh, No, just like went down in a hardcore way for about 10 days and 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 like missed. So I missed my appointment is the point of this. I missed my meeting with them, had to reschedule, and then was so paranoid that they were going to give it to somebody else. I rallied like way too soon. (laughs) So my second... uh, uh, audition with them was just all I can remember is sweat like so <laughs> much sweat like sweating through my clothes stopping to blow my nose tissues stuffed down my pants and in my bra stopping to powder my face like I had to take off my shoes at one point because I was sweating so much that I couldn't walk in them anymore yeah so this that, seems like a choice that could have been memorable you know I yeah you definitely couldn't forget it and, and, I mean I changed the ecosystem it, in that room to be clear this is not a part one could play on cold medicine so you could not do that so you had to they had to deal with what what you were bringing they, they did so that was specifically the heat that 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 sold them on you do you think it was the that'd be a question for them ultimately okay, at the enough. end of the day but uh but but here we are huh okay so this part um in some ways, I imagine it's like putting on a cape because mm. the character of Midge can, you know, obviously she has her costumes, which are spectacular. I know. Um, but she's so heroic and super competent in so many ways mm. and so good at so many things. So I imagine that that is an incredibly appealing part of the role and fun. Yeah. Yet the the key to the part is the fragility underneath it and the willingness of this superheroine to mm. fly boldly into the unknown and or a brick wall. Yes, both. <laughs> that seems to be that seems to me to be quite a challenge for an actor. Yeah, it's but it's a welcome one. You know, um, one of the things that one of the many things that drew me to the script right away is that I realized in reading it that this is one of the most, if not the most, unapologetically and genuine, conf, genuinely confident women mm-hmm. I've ever read. Um, I've certainly never played one, and and that felt important to me, mm-hmm. uh, and. Uh, radical in a way that it shouldn't anymore. Yeah. Um, and so the the challenge of trying to find all of the different pieces that make Midge the extraordinary woman that she is mm-hmm. was exciting. It's not very often that you get to sink your teeth so deeply into something as an actress. Mm-hmm. There aren't very many roles like this out there. Mm-hmm. And so I was I was excited by the challenge and and incredibly honored to have been given the opportunity to go for it. How do you keep uh, one hand on the humanity of the character uh, when you are carried along, and I mean that with all the fun that <laughs> implies, like a funhouse ride with the costumes and the sets and the era and this just crackling, doesn't do it justice, dialogue that's you know, like everyone yeah. is playing ping pong at the same time. Yeah. Uh, it could veer into cartoonishness, frankly. 
yeah. in the wrong hands. How do you, and I guess the larger question behind that is how does everyone involved mm. keep it, uh, keep, keep the emotions present? I think, I think all of those things that you're naming, they actually help us do our jobs better. You know, the extraordinary costumes, the set design. We walk onto set. Mm-hmm. We have been physically transformed. Mm-hmm. and The Kleenex have been removed from your They've been all removed body. from all of my crevices. And, and we feel like we've time traveled. You know, and so there's very little pretending involved. Mm-hmm. We don't have to work so hard to try and imagine what the world looks like. Mm-hmm. It's there in front of us. And so all we have to do is be well prepared, you know, with all this monstrous amounts of dialogue, mm-hmm. and uh, and and be present and be people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that helps so much that everybody else is at the top of their game. They're taking such good care of us. Right. That our only job is to show up and act. Everything else is removed. Mm-hmm. The show is uh, so deeply Jewish at times that I almost at times become. All the I was time. being. <laughs> I almost become uncomfortable. Like, not in a bad really? way. No, like, I love it. But it's in the kind of way where I was like, uh, where, uh, you know, should I put a mezuzah on my door or just calling attention to it? <laughs> yeah. Like, that's how I feel when I watch the, yeah, when yeah, I watch yeah, the show yeah, yeah. sometimes. Not since the reference to the standing order at Cantor's on Transparent have I felt what? so, like, deeply, yep. culturally, not necessarily relig- religiously, yeah. seen. <laughs> That's nice. That's, that's a wild. I feel like that's a wild thing. How do you, how do you feel yeah. about that? How do you take that? Well, that this world. Um, so so I'm I'm not Jewish personally. By the way, Mazel Tov then, because you, you sell it. Thank you. Well, I think part of that is that I so I grew up in a really non-religious household, mm-hmm. so we're not really anything uh, as it were, like but, many Jews. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> religiously. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Um, but I grew up in this in this uh, intensely saturated. Jewish culture mm-hmm. um, in, a, in a very predominantly Jewish town in the North Shore of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And so th- this script and this world, this uh, this very um, j- this very unapologetically Jewish world that the show creates actually felt very familiar to me. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's, I grew up right in the middle of it. Yeah. Uh, you know, every, every Friday spending the night at a friend's house, I'd go to temple with them in the morning. I was welcomed. So, so you're saying you're more Jewish than me. So you clearly, I, I may be. Yeah, I, you're, you're stunting a little bit. I could bit. Yeah. maybe bar mitzvah you. <laughs> <I think>. um, <laughs> it didn't take point. the first time. I think it's probably a good idea. Uh, yeah, so so it felt it felt familiar, is, I guess, where I'm, what I'm well, saying. Well, speaking of other other worlds, the other aspect of the show that I, I, I need to bring up is yeah. the, the comedy part of it. Yeah. Um, I, Obviously, the, the the journey of the show. I imagine I've only seen the first few episodes of the first season. I know you are guaranteed a second. I mm-hmm. hope there will be many more. Um, is about Midge's entry into this other hidden world of, yeah. of stand up comedy and 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 performing. Um, stand up, fictional stand up is such a tricky business, um, and I'm mad because you have to theoretically be funny, but you're writing about being funny, which sort of often leeches the funny out of it. Yeah. Even trickier here because you have to articulate someone who is learning to be funny. Yes. So it has to be funny, but not too funny. How is my question? How did, how is that balancing? That's act a achieved? loaded question. Yeah. Uh, I I think yes. So I think w- one of the major keys to that is um, is this last thing that you said, which is that you know Midge is learning to be funny. I'm not a comic. I've never done stand up. I've actually never really done comedy. Mm-hmm. So. I had the luxury of learning alongside Midge with the guidance of Amy, who's one of the funniest women I've ever met, mm-hmm. and her brilliant and hilarious script. So um, I feel like that was a huge part of making this believable. As I said, it's similar to what you asked earlier about, you know, this how, how do we keep it from being cartoonish? Well, everything's taken care of 
for us. So mm-hmm. we just show up and act. Mm-hmm. It honestly feels the same. Um, Midge's style of comedy is this stream of consciousness. <laughs> she doesn't know she's doing it. She just is a funny woman who has a really sharp and unique perspective on the world. Mm-hmm. And she's very emotional. And that's that's where this impromptu stand-up is born. Yeah, it does not come from her head. It comes from something much deeper. Exactly. You know, Alex Borstein said something really funny to me while we were shooting, but, but it feels like I understand it differently now. Um, she said to me while we were shooting, so the way we shoot the stand-up stuff mm-hmm. is we, we have all these background actors and we're in our gaslight set and we run it a couple times with everyone there to sort of see where they naturally laugh, mm-hmm. where we need to make them laugh. Mm-hmm. Encourage them to <laughs> laugh. Encourage yeah. them to laugh. And, uh, and then we pull them out for sound purposes mm-hmm. and I do the sets to an empty house. Oh, that must be fun. Yeah. Well, so... As somebody who's never done it, yeah. that doesn't feel that strange to me. Oh, true. Right, of course, because it's a performance. Because I don't know. Yeah, yeah well, it's, it's like a monologue. You know, I I don't—Alex uh, Borstein said to me that that a stand-up comedian could never have played this part because they would want to sink into a hole and die the minute that they yes. were playing to an empty room and it was echoing back or, or, to them. Or performing, the, performing, in quotes, the thing that is the most natural to them. Exactly. Um, and so I think that that is what— that's probably what helped us, my my lack of knowledge of That's what a, it was like to be a stand-up. Be, because I've heard anecdotally from people, um, even people who are veteran performers, yeah. that physically standing on a stage with a microphone yeah. is totally destabilizing and, and, mm-hmm. and freaky. It's mm-hmm. just not – it's vulnerable in a different way. It's physically yeah. different. Um, did yeah. you have that experience? I mean, because you, clearly you, you've, you've been acting. You are a professional actor. You have stood on a stage and – Delivered yes. to the back of the house, but that's that's a different thing. It, the physically dealing with the microphone was something that was a little bit uncomfortable to me. Mm-hmm. That's just not how I've ever performed on a stage. That said, you whip it out of the you, you do the one thing that, that that they do. I, I phrase that poorly, but you you remove the microphone from the stand. That was a, all, Amy. <laughs> with a with a certain head of steam, it's very Gusto. good. Gusto, Gusto is the uh, word. Thank yeah. you. Um, uh, yeah, that 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 was all that was all, Amy. But um. But yeah, I, I mean, I think, and then as we went on during the season, uh, I actually became less and less able to perform without the audience. And I think mm-hmm. that part of that was that as Midge is refining this raw and mm-hmm. natural skill that she has, I was able to learn some of the more technical aspects of comedy. You know, mm-hmm. there's is an episode, I, I want to say it's episode four, where mm-hmm. they're talking about what she needs to learn. She needs to learn to work a room. Mm-hmm. She needs to learn how to stand on the stage and how to handle a mic. Mm-hmm. She needs to learn to read an audience and have a dialogue with them. Mm-hmm. Those are all things that, as somebody who's never done stand-up, I've never done before. Yeah. But I got to practice as Midge was practicing. Mm-hmm. And so it's not until, I want to say like episode seven or eight, that she really actually gets a tight ten um, and starts to perform Real stand-up. Well, one of the gifts of the show is that you were given two years of runway, right? There's two two years. You, am oh, I correct yes. about that? Two there seasons. were two, two seasons. Yeah. I'm sorry. Um, you meant before it. I was like, God, that would have no. been amazing. In a way, you've been preparing for this your whole <laughs> My life. My whole life. <laughs> but, uh, but two seasons guaranteed. Yes. Which is a very nice thing. Yeah. Um, what what interests you about the character knowing you're spending this much time with it? Often when I talk to people who have um, – I mean, you've worked in series television before, mm-hmm. but this, you are the lead in the show. Yeah. Um, that's a lot of time to live with someone. Yeah. And obviously the show sets up um, a transformative path for the character. But what, what excites you about that journey? And what do you think the show, where do you think the show can go in that time? It could go so many different places. This is a really interesting period in history mm-hmm. that we're living in. It's a very um, transformative time for comedy. Comedy was changing a lot during that time. Uh, 
the world's relationship to women um, is is a is a huge part of this show and something that we'll surely deal with moving forward that and, we and are continues. still dealing with today. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're still fighting so many of the same battles. Um, this show sets up this idea that this is a woman who thought she had found her voice. And it turns out she has one that she had no idea existed. Mm-hmm. And I really think we've only scratched the surface by the time we reach the end of this season. Mm-hmm. Um, I still don't think – I think we have a really good idea, but we still don't know exactly what kind of comedian Midge is going to become. Mm-hmm. And I'm excited to see what happens to her as she starts performing in different venues, mm-hmm. as she gains more notoriety, as she gets haters. You know, like yeah. what what happens to her then? That that's And I feel like that could take us seasons and seasons yeah. and seasons. Because right now it's like a secret break with mm-hmm. um, society. Yes. In the place, the part of New York where that was allowed. Yeah. But as the light – spotlight turns or she takes yeah. it outside of it it changes things yeah um you alluded to it it, it we it's 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 everywhere i think that it's fair to say uh, that the show comes at a very good time not for the world but also for for amazon um mm. happy that this is an amazon original and one yeah. of the best i think um it feels glib to ask you a general question about this but i do think it's wonderful to see this show and this character at this moment i do too um can you articulate better than I can why? Well, I think it's this idea that, you know, at best, television holds up a mirror to the world that we live in mm-hmm. and forces us to take a better look at ourselves. And with a period piece and one like this, it's it's forcing us to look both at how far we've come and how far we have not come. Mm-hmm. Um it highlights a lot of the battles we're still fighting today. And this is a comedy. You know, it's it's very lighthearted. It's obviously going to approach it in a different way. But uh, I don't know if I can articulate better than you can um, uh, why it's important. But I think more than anything, this specific show, all these conversations that we're having about about our industry right now and how do we fix things. And it's not just our industry. It's, it's every industry. Mm-hmm. It's this country. We have a deep-rooted societal problem with abusive power and how do we fix it we're asking this question every day right now i think shows like this are one part Mm -hmm. of an extremely multifaceted and long-term solution um this is a show that is created by written by directed by produced by an extraordinary woman Mm -hmm. and an extraordinary man who loves extraordinary women about an extraordinary woman at a time when it wasn't acceptable to be as extraordinary as she is and i think that we need more women in positions like Amy's. We need more women, more people of color in positions of power and influence. Mm -hmm. And so I think, at best, this show is a part of a much larger conversation about about what needs to change and how we get more content like this. This is one woman's story. There are so many that still have to be told. That's what's so striking about the show. We're coming on the end... um, we, we, I think we've seen the end of an era that everyone uh, lauded as the as a golden age of television yeah. that really spent a good portion of its time telling a very particular kind of story. Yes. It's there in the title of that book that was written about it, Difficult Men. Mm. And, um, you know, you're a veteran of a show like that too, of House of Cards. Yeah. Um, many wonderful shows. I mean, I'm not going to – I will never pretend to criticize Sopranos or Breaking Bad or The Wire say, as, yeah. as masterpieces that they yeah. are. However, it's incredible and – exhilarating both as a fan of the industry and as a fan of television to watch a character like Midge deal with difficult men yeah. who could or would be the star of the show or a different show yeah. 
her husband, her father, her father-in-law. I mean, some of these are more broadly drawn than others. Yeah. But she deals with them. She dispatches with them and then gets on with the business of her own life. And, you know, politics aside, that makes good art. Yes. It's it's incredibly exciting to watch. Well, she's fully fleshed out. Mm-hmm. She's a three-dimensional person. I've I've you know, we've obviously been talking about this show a lot these last couple of weeks as we're approaching our air date. And and something that I keep coming back to is that I know women like Midge. Mm-hmm. More than one. You know, the, the You said this, you went to synagogue on, on yeah, I did. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and I know I know so many women who are who are proud of who they are, mm-hmm. who are ambitious who are empowered and there are not enough of them represented in television. You know, mm-hmm. this this idea of the anti-hero, which is also something that's been a huge yeah. part of the golden age of television, as as we call it. Um, where where are the women? I think Claire Underwood is a really great example of that on House yeah. of Cards and Robin is extraordinary on that show. Um, but where are the women like that at the center? Too often they're tut-tutting the men and exactly. telling them to, you can't have your fun exactly. murdering people or exactly. making drugs or whatever it might be. Yeah. And, and of course, no shots to the actresses who played those parts, no, but no. they played what they were given. Yeah, and it, and it doesn't make those stories any less valuable. Mm. It just means that we need more of them and we need more of them from different perspectives. We mm-hmm. need We need our content. This is you know, stretches from the news to film and TV to literature to um, to radio, all, all of these mediums, we need it to better reflect the world we live in. Mm-hmm. It's, there's there's one group at the top right now and they control the money. Mm-hmm. They, they have their, they have their finger on the button, mm-hmm. really. They, uh, <laughs> they, <laughs> they, they control what gets made. They mm-hmm. are the people who have the ability to green light these projects and, and we have to have different voices in the room up there. What a tragedy on so many levels if we are in an era when so many shows can get made, when there's so many ways right. to watch things and right. process them and, and channels and avenues and yeah. deals that we're just going to use that to tell the same stories. I I have hope, though. I think, obviously, we know that we've been talking about this for what feels like such a long time. We've, we know that this is a problem. Mm-hmm. We've known it forever. and And we have yet to follow through in any kind of meaningful way. Um, I don't know the exact numbers, but the the number of women who who have directed studio projects is is ugh, just so so shamefully low. Mm-hmm. Um, I think with everything that's going on in Hollywood right now, as long as we as long as we don't let this news cycle continue to move as quickly as it is and just brush past it and forget about it, as long as we continue to hold each other accountable. I feel hopeful that this could be the moment that things really begin to change. Um, I do. I, I love your optimism. I hope so, too. <laughs> but in a way to, 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 to put a bow on it, I think a show like Marvelous Mrs. Maisel fills me with hope and, and joy. Because it so is too. For people just tuning in for the last five minutes of our conversation might yeah. not know it, but it's a delightful show. Thank you. I mean, it truly is. It is a pleasure to watch. When it seems to and, appeal, I think there's this understanding that women make shows for women. Yeah. But it appeals to women. It appeals to men. It appeals to teenagers. It appeals to old folks. You know, I think there's something in there for everyone. Yeah. And, and doing doing good sounds so um, trite, but 
it, it's not homework. No. You know, to let uh, Amy write the story she wants to write, to let you play it the way you want to play it or the way Amy t- tells you to play it, depending. Both. <laughs> well, hopefully a good collaboration. Yeah, exactly. But but something, it, it, I, I feel like that's, that's my main takeaway. It's just, I, I love the show at the beginning of the year when I saw it, but I, cool. I love it even more now because it's it's nice to have nice things. Yes. So uh, let, let's, let's not ruin nice things. <laughs> no. And so you are, you go back, we know you have the second season. When yeah. do you go back to work? In the spring. Okay. So you have a little time. Yeah. Which you will spend in weather, as you said, not here in Los Angeles. Yes, no, I will. I will hopefully be spending it in New York. I, I love winter in New York. I mean, I, I love snow boots. Wow. <laughs> I know, I know, but wow. I, I don't know. Weather feels like it. It's cleansing in a way. You know, I, you can you can really follow time, as we were talking it, about before it, we before we. It's got appropriate on to have weather. I yeah. didn't realize the thing that I would miss most from the East Coast was East Coast summer because East Coast summer, well punishingly hot and humid and mosquitoes and et cetera, et cetera, and the Second everywhere. Avenue subway and the way it smells, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's earned. Yes. People are so happy yes. because you've earned it. Yeah. And I, I think— Weather I, is the great equalizer. Yes, I agree with that too. <laughs> yeah. Weather and the subway and the two together. Yes, yes, yes. But All right. Well, now that we've solved pretty much everything— I think uh, we've done it. Sexism in Hollywood yeah. um, and uh, which coast is better. Yeah. Anything else? Maybe we'll save it for the next time. Yeah, yeah next season time. Two. Okay, Rachel, thank you for taking the time to talk thank to me. Thank you. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by the homies at Sonos, presenting the brand new Sonos One. Sonos One blends great sound with Amazon Alexa, the easy-to-use voice service for hands-free control of your music and more. Use your voice to play songs while you cook, in the shower, talking in the kids at night, wherever you listen to music, radio, podcasts. This is an awesome way to do it. I would like to tell you how I've been managing my own smart devices on Sonos One, how I've been checking the weather, checking the temperature, using Alexa. Except here's the thing. My wife loves this so much, she took it. My wife took the Sonos One and has it in her office where she's enjoying all these incredible features. So here's my here's my suggestion to avoid that, guys. Get two Sonos Ones. And here's a deal to help you do that. For a limited time, Sonos is offering our listeners 10% off one order of $2,500 or less for any product at Sonos.com. Here's how you get it. Use the promo code WATCH10. Let me spell that out for you. Capital letters, W-A-T-C-H-1-0 at Sonos.com to receive this offer. Check out all the great products at Sonos, but especially the Alexa-controlled Sonos One.